I don't think that our way of reporting on people serves the army well. It's almost based on what you've done, not necessarily how people think you're going to be in the future. Because if you look at the potential paragraph in any report, it's the smaller bit. And I don't also don't think we necessarily judge people properly against leadership. And if we think that an army is all about people and all about how we lead people, and we've all seen it in the press over the last three or four years, you know, some of the stories of toxic leadership have come out. But, you know, it was all about bringing our people through properly and, and, and empowering them, and we just didn't do that. I'm Nick Haley, founder of Little Big Tech. After more than a decade in the army, I left and joined civilian life. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking to entrepreneurs who left military service and started the next exciting chapter in their lives. We'll hear how these inspiring individuals transitioned from active service to the world of business. How did they take the first step on the road to becoming an entrepreneur? We'll find out. Welcome to Little Big Vets, the veteran entrepreneurs podcast. From commanding and training infantry soldiers during operational tours in Northern Ireland, Afghanistan and Bosnia, to becoming responsible for the day-to-day -day management, leadership and welfare of battalions of up to 650 men and women, my guest on today's podcast, Guy Dennison-Smith, is no stranger to the qualities it takes to lead. From paving the way at the forefront of the digitisation of officer training across the British Army, to advising the UK's representative in the United Nations on foreign policy, Few people can say they've had a career as interesting and impressive as Guy. Since those days, Guy has founded his own Croatian wine import company, Blue Ice Wine UK, led an expedition of eight Grenadier veterans, five of whom with life-changing injuries, down the Yukon River in open canoes across several days, and now serves as a managing director for a recruitment business, Universal Recruitment and Interim Solutions, which has the aim of helping service leavers and veterans find a second career. Something very close to his heart. What a career. Guy, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. A pre-chat, it turned out that we actually were on the same tour as each other uh, some years ago. We were, Nick. And, and thank you for inviting me to come on your uh, podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. And so I think, yeah, we probably didn't meet, but we were in the same geographical location in 2007. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a bit about your career in the army. I joined the army uh, at Sandhurst in early 1991, uh, passing out at the end of that year, and then joined my battalion, the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, who at the time were on ceremonial duties in London. Um, and then I sort of went through the normal routine for a, a young officer of platoon commander, uh, taking the recce platoon to Northern Ireland, two tours of Northern Ireland as a platoon commander, um, then going on to the staff, doing training jobs, uh, then company command, uh, which took me back to Northern Ireland again, a tour in Bosnia as a, as a, as a staff officer in the NATO headquarters in the late 90s. Uh, and then I went really onto the staff for quite a while, um, including staff college itself, and then going back out to, Af well, sorry, not back out to Afghanistan, but out to Afghanistan to head up the SSR cell, the, uh, I can't remember what it stands for now, the doesn't really matter, but running the police, basically, um, helping them set up the police force, security sector reform, that's the one, um, uh, helping them run the police, set the police up. Um, and then from there, I got promoted, 
went into to headquarters of the army to do a job of digitization, which was basically helping the tactical level of the army digitize so they could actually use um, both voice and data on the battlefield rather than having to use sort of paper maps um, and insecure voice, they could use secure voice and digitize mapping and text and the like. And then I thought, actually, it's time to put my family first. So I applied for a job which took me out to New York for, for almost four years. Um, and with the best will of the world, probably killed my career at that stage, but went out there knowing that that was going to be the case um, and had the most amazing four years advising the UK's ambassador to the United Nations. Then from there, we went to Kuwait and then back to the UK for a year. And then I left in 2017. If we go back to the start, mm. ceremonial duties. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I did ceremonial duties in the 90s uh, also with the Irish Guards. Um, how, how did you find that? So to begin with, it's, it's quite a thrill and it's quite an honour. You're there, you know, people laugh at it in terms of the army, but actually you do have a role. That, you know, in those days, there really was a role. We were the first point of contact if anything went wrong, particularly at night. And okay, we worked very closely with the police, but we, we were the ones that, that did everything. If something went wrong, we had to be there. The trouble is you get into uh, a bit of a routine where you end up on what they call the blue line, sometimes for six to eight weeks at a time, which almost means you're, you're mounting a duty every 24 to 48 hours. And that prevents you from training, it prevents you from maintaining levels of fitness. Um, and so you had to come up with quite in, in, you know, different ways of, of managing that. And we were quite fortunate, the fact that we had uh, an operational tour in South Armagh um, uh, thrown in sort of halfway through our five years in London District. And then from there went back out to Northern Ireland for a stint. I remember um, in public duties, uh, when I did Troop in the Colour, the hairs on the back of my neck standing up mm. thinking like, you know, th this is a, a, a really famous thing, you know, and it's watched all over the world. And it, it was, I, I got a really cool experience from, yeah, from I think, that. I think you'll, I, I believe the numbers are something ridiculous. Like at any one time there are, people say there's a billion people around the world watching Troop in the Colour. Uh, I don't know whether that's true, but you know, those numbers are bounced around. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people. It is televised around the world. There's no two ways about it. And I think that it's something that, that we as an, arm, as an army, but also the nation, can be incredibly proud of. You know, we do do state ceremonial like no one else. And I think a lot of people um, who, who are not from military circles don't realise that they're actually fighting soldiers that are doing these ceremonial duties. Yeah, I mean, our, our, I mean sort of our... our, 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 sort of our, our whatever you call it, our, our unwritten motto in the Grenadiers is, you know, twice the man. And that relates to the fact that our primary role is as infantry soldiers. Um, and our secondary role is, is public duties. Um, and you're quite right, Nick, in that a lot of people look at the foot guards and they see them wearing red tunics in London. Actually, the vast majority of time, they're actually wearing, um, you know, combats um, and either training for or going on operations. If we fast forward along to uh, to the New York Post, <laughs> so uh, how did that come about? So I uh, I saw I was looking for a way out of getting out of headquarters land. Um, uh, I was fed up with with the culture. Um, I just saw it quite often as toxic. It, you know, not great use of people's time. You know, generals would be getting 
colonels to brief them when actually the person that should be briefing them should be a captain. You know, it, it just, it, it just, the whole thing was, was quite toxic. And I saw a job come up on this list and I thought, I want that job. Um, and it was the first time in my career, probably, I should have done it before, but I, I didn't. I just thought, you know, the system will look after one. I rang up people I knew who might be able to influence it. And I made quite a few phone calls, um, including to uh, one of your Royal Signals, one, one stars, a guy called Andy Bristow, who, who was incredibly helpful. And the next thing I knew, I'd been allocated the role to go to New York. And so uh, as a family, we moved there in uh, late February, early March to, uh, 2011. Um, and it was great. It was great. I, we, we were living in a civilian community. Um, you know, the, mo the people around us were either expats or, or Americans who most of whom worked in Manhattan, either in banking or, or in roles that supported banking, whether they be recruitment or IT or, or something along those lines. And we lived a lifestyle that, that you couldn't get anywhere else in the British Army. It does sound quite a Gucci posting. Well, if I can, <laughs> if I can say that I think our last winter um, there, we started being able to ski in the November and we stopped skiing in, in April. And I think I'm right in saying that I think my wife and I and my youngest son managed something like 30 days skiing across that winter if not maybe slightly more because you could go up on a saturday morning and you could be on the slopes in two hours um and then you could come back on a sunday night um and you know it was just fantastic we visited 35 states in four, three and three and three quarter years um it was brilliant wow and so uh was your uh was your son out there with you as well or yeah so our youngest was there because he when we went was four so he went through uh, what they call uh, pre-kindergarten, then kindergarten year, which the kindergarten year is sort of the equivalent to our um, reception year, although it's done a year later. Um, and then he went through first and second grade. And then my two our two older children were already at um, private school here. So they stayed and they basically commuted for holidays and half terms. Aged at the time, it was horrible, aged nine and... Uh, what were they, 9 and 12, I think, or 9 and 10. No, 9 and, nine and 12 when we went. Then, uh, then on to Kuwait? Yeah, so we left there and we thought, let's have, another, let's have another journey overseas. So we went off to Kuwait for two years and I taught at uh, the Kuwaiti Staff College. So uh, teaching international um, officers, uh, so clearly lots of Kuwaiti officers, uh, but all, all the Middle Eastern states were represented. Um, and then you had a British student, an Australian student, an American, Turkish, you know, you know, a wide range of students. And we ran a course, a year-long course, and we did, I did two years there. Um, fascinating place to live. Very, very different culture. Um, you know, money, no option. Uh, money, sorry, money, no object. Um, uh, just quite quite a bizarre place to live we we to be very honest we couldn't quite get to grips with it we had the option of staying on for a third year but we wanted to get home so then that was uh that's five years of uh, of posting sort of out of the almost almost six okay almost six yeah and so out of the normal sort of uh type of jobs was it then when you got back from q8 that you 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 then quickly made the decision of 
actually it, it's time to do something else. Yeah, I'd sort of set my stall out by saying that I need to, if I wanted to pr- have a proper chance for a second career, whatever that looked like, or I needed to be out before I was 50. So going back to the UK, the job that I went to was teaching then at uh, the UK Staff College. Um, and it was supposed to be a three-year tour. Um, and so the moment we, we settled back in the UK, I started. Um, and I started looking. Um, and I was talking to headhunters. I was writing letters. I was networking. Um, and then, uh, bizarrely, an opportunity came along that um, I got a text from a friend that said, I've got a job you might be interested in. He was a serving officer at the time, and he'd, he'd received a... A text from a friend of his um, and I said yeah fine why not and it turned out this job was basically to go and be uh, the chief of staff for a, uh, an ultra high net worth family um, they, they needed somebody to run all of their private um, enterprises uh, so not clearly not investments because I'm not an investment manager um, uh, and I probably struggle enough with my own investments let alone someone else's um, so uh, I applied um, I went for my first, you might not believe this, but my first interview since 1987 in 2018. Um, and that f- last interview was an interview to get me into the British Army. Um, so I, I went down to London, uh, chatted with the lady who was interviewing on their behalf, said to her, so how many people are you seeing? She said, well, I've five um uh, one hadn't responded one hadn't shown up and therefore there were three of us and she said you're by far the more experienced than the others um and i'll be putting your name forward i thought this doesn't happen to me uh so i then went to go and see the family um had an hour and a half with them and literally left them and by the time i got to paddington station um i got a call saying they were offering me a job um and that was my flash to bang and so then, uh, had you already signed off at this point? No. So then? So I then had to go through uh, the PVR process. Yeah. Um, you know, asked to be able, asked to leave early, effectively. Um, and, you know, it, it, it shocked me how difficult the army made that. You know, they were, it was at a period of time, so 2017, 2018, where they were still screaming out that they had too many officers, they needed to, you know, cut numbers and so on and so forth. And there was, there was me as a lieutenant colonel, age 47, who was willing to just say, I want to go now. And they couldn't have made it more difficult. Um, and so this was about April, this was April, early May 2018, where I'd been given a job offer. Um, and I managed to actually leave on the... 1st of September and started work on the 3rd. Didn't have direct um, uh, consideration from Glasgow fully that it it was all clear until four weeks before. So the end of July, beginning of August, they actually formally told me that I could leave. Um, And that, you know, I found that quite surprising. Um, But I, you know, I gave up all my resettlement. So I didn't do any resettlement. I gave up all my leave um, other than sort of a bit of annual leave. uh, you know, because if I'd signed off properly, I'd have got out at end of January 18, I'd have got out um, rather than rather than September 17. Um, so you didn't do the joyous CV writing workshop? No, no. 
Possibly. But... Right, we can talk about that later. <laughs> I've seen some horror stories that come out of that. Um, so um, what, what would you say the highlight of your, uh, of your career was, your military career? So I think it's difficult to put it, it onto one thing. Um, I think the first thing I'd say, and, and I, I'm sure a lot of people say this, I think the greatest privilege I had was being given the opportunity to lead and command soldiers. Um, and I, I hope that I never took that for granted in the way that I went about it, because ultimately that's what we're there to do as officers. Um, and so going on, you know, three tours of Northern Ireland at platoon level, recce platoon level, and then company commander level, commanding soldiers on operations was a huge, huge challenge huge honour, and just what I signed up to do, and I loved it. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's easy to say, and you'll probably hear that from a lot of people. In terms of job, in physical job, I would have to say that if somebody had told me when I first went to Santos that I would go to New York for three and a half, almost four years, I'd have laughed at them. It was one of the most fascinating things I've done. You know, to see UK foreign policy firsthand on the floor of the UN Security Council is just staggering. And, and having a part in it. You know, when I first arrived, it was the time where Libya was collapsing. Um, Cote d'Ivoire was, was collapsing again. Um, I think, you know, the Libya resolution, I think was uh, resolution 1973, I think it was. You know, that was going through the chamber in the first couple of weeks I was there. You know, watching how the Russians and the Chinese behaved towards that. Um, and then you had Syria. Um, then you had Mali. I mean, just, it was a continuous. So the three and a half-ish years that I was there, it was a continuous change of uncertainty, particularly in Africa and, you know, the sort of Syria, Iraq, Middle East area, that area of the Middle East. Um, the rest of it was pretty much normal jogging. I mean, you know, yes, there were problems in Afghanistan, but it wasn't a UN. It wasn't a UN mission. There was a UN mission there, but it wasn't a UN mission. Um, uh, there was a UN mission in Iraq, but but it wasn't being led by the UN. Again, it was being led by a coalition. So the other ones, the Syrias and the Libya and so on, really made it for a, a really interesting time. And seeing the dynamic that the Russians were absolutely against everything that us, the US, the French and other like-minded people wanted to do and they would bring the Chinese along with them. And so getting anything through the Security Council was incredibly difficult. If we look at uh, challenges you faced, what would you, what would you think your, your greatest challenge during your, your military career was? I think the greatest challenge that I faced in my career was was that I probably naively thought that the army would look after one in everything that it did. I'm not saying I had a bad time. I loved my time in the army. But I don't think that our way of reporting on people serves the army well. And I'm not saying that I would have necessarily been promoted further i'm not saying that i just don't think it was particularly done i think that i found quite a challenge so you know you would if 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 you had somebody that wrote well then that would pull somebody through if you had somebody who wrote badly yeah 
that person's career was. It's not quite the meritocracy that it's painted, uh, the picture is painted. No, because it's based on, it's very, it's almost based on what you've done, not necessarily what you're going, how, how people think you're going to be in the future. Because if you look at the potential paragraph in any report, it's the smaller bit. And actually what people should be looking at. And I don't also don't think we necessarily judge people properly against leadership. Um, and if we think that uh, an army is all about people and all about how we lead people, and we've all seen it in the press over the last three or four years, you know, some of the stories of toxic leadership that have come out, you know, and the current CGS is, is very much of a mind to drive, to drive that out. I don't, I don't believe that we've ever properly done anything about it. I mean, I remember as a, as a, as a, an, a, as a lieutenant colonel writing to the then, uh, I don't know the position, what position he was, but he was a three-star in land, saying what I thought was wrong with land headquarters. I mean, it's quite a necky thing to do as a lieutenant colonel. You know, it was three sides. Um, I got a response. But, you know, it was all about bringing our people through properly and, and, and empowering them, and we just didn't do that. So then we, we, we come to the, the end of your career and you've, you've got this job offer and you've, you're off to start the, the, the new career mm. after, after 26 years in, uh, in the army. What, what was that like? So like a very short amount of time was, from last day Nick, to first was, day. Nick, it was, it was amazing. I mean, you know, I literally, I, I left Shrivenham on the Friday. I got on a plane on the Sunday morning and I flew up to um, uh, Inverness Airport. And I got picked up and I got taken to their, their Scottish pile up in the Highlands. And that was my first introduction to the job. And I spent three days up there with them, know, getting to know them, seeing what the problems were, getting to grips with it. And, and that was it. And then, you know, I was, it was everything that, that you would expect somebody to be able to do from the military you know it was about how do you prioritize you know where do you need to put effort um so you know they had their property in london their property in sussex their property in scotland they had properties in amsterdam they had property in france they had a 50 meter yacht on the mediterranean and you couldn't be everywhere at once clearly but you had to be you had to be able to go and visit you had to be able to go and see these places be able to understand how they worked and where the problems were and where, where the good things were. I mean, it wasn't just about problems. But often with these high net worth individuals, all they can see is problems. They can't necessarily see the good. So I also saw that part of my role was telling them what actually was going well um, because it's, they were very quick to complain. Um, and actually, sometimes it just needs to be told, actually, this is going well. Um, but it was a really real eye-opener. Um, you know, I'd never dealt with tax advisors before or, or, you know, investment advisors at that level or, you know, oh, I'm going to go and buy a car for a million pounds, uh, right? And you want me to do what? Well, I want you to transfer the money and, and go and pick the car up. Okay. I've never driven a car for, that's been more than about 20 grand in my life. You want me to pick something else a million? You know, it was that environment. Um, it was absolutely, it was staggering. You know, Were they looking for someone specifically from the military? Well, so he had had some pretty bad press uh, in the run-up to when I took over. And so they had brought in a PR advisor. And one of the things that she suggested they do was look to have a chief of staff. Um, I think she described as a private office manager. Um, but actually, it was, it, was the, it was a very similar role to being... 
you know, clearly not as many assets, but effectively a brigade chief of staff or a battle group chief of staff. You, you are looking after all the stuff that's going on that makes things work um, and advising upwards and often talking truth to power. Um, and so she said, well, I think what you need is you perhaps might need an army, somebody, an army officer, somebody with a background in the army. And hence why the job came across my, across my, um, uh, uh, across my table. Um, and that's why, you know, I went for it and it was great fun. Um, it, it got quite toxic towards the end, but I always knew it had the chance of going that way because of the types of individuals you're dealing with. I think generally people, uh, say chief of staff roles in, uh, in civilian organisations and not long-term positions. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, you can get people who they just slot in naturally and the person they're working for is exceptional. And I think, you know, one of those characters potentially, someone like, you know, my understanding, you know, I, I mean, I don't know him clearly, but I've, I've listened to podcasts on him. Richard Branson, suppose he's delightful to work for because he empowers people. He he wants people to to feel that they are needed and so on and so forth. And I think that, you know, if you fall into that type of role, then yeah. it gets it. But there are others, like the one that I was with, you know, there was often times where I was thinking, you know, I think we had six personal assistants in three years. Um, you know, it was, and there's nothing, you know, they turn around and say, they don't want her. There's nothing I can do about it. So I have to go and find another one. But I'm the one that's doing the hiring and firing. You know, and, and it's, so, you know, three years for me was long enough. So I did it until sort of summer 2020. So, you know, from what September 17 to, I think my last paid day was like middle of July, 2020. And so you started thinking that you wanted to move on and do something else? Yeah, I knew that he was, I knew that he was trying to make life difficult for me and wanting me to leave. Um... I think he missed the fact that, and this will make you laugh, you know, if you've been screamed and shouted at by sergeant majors and colour sergeants at Sandhurst, you can put up with with an, an angry high net worth. Um, uh, and so I just bided my time. And so eventually he made me redundant. Um, and I had a three-month notice period, so I worked off my notice. Um, and it coincided with the beginning of the COVID pandemic and lockdown. So it really wasn't a huge skin off my nose. So moved on from that job, mm. start of COVID. Sounds like a perfect time for a new company. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, if I, so if I go slightly back, because I knew towards the end of uh, 2019 that things weren't looking good, um, just the way that the behaviour patterns, etc. Um, and so I'd started looking um, elsewhere and I'd started... Uh, and the reason this is important is because when we move forward to the recruitment, you'll see where, where this sort of fits in. Um, and so I started looking and I was going for interviews and I was, you know, I think on four or five occasions, I'd got down to the last one, two or three. And each time the feedback was, oh, you don't have enough commercial experience or you don't have enough experience of this. Or, you don't have enough experience of that. And not being arrogant, I knew that I could do those jobs. And I knew that I could do them well. The fact that I, you know, I, I, I didn't have commercial experience in a particular field, I know that I could have learned that quickly and I could have added value. And it frustrated me. 
And so I thought rather than continuing to be frustrated, why don't I look to do something myself? Um, and, I'd, and, I, and I slightly have worked off the old adage that if you have an itch, you should scratch it. And I'd had an, a slight itch for a while thinking, God, it'd be nice to, it'd be nice to try and do something myself. My, my older brother's always been an entrepreneur um, uh, and a highly successful one. You know, he, he set, his own, set up his own um, value investing fund about 12, 13 years ago. Now, they've now got, I think, two and a half billion under management. He'd done it all himself. And so there's always been that gene, I think, that of slight entrepreneurial thing. Um, and I was chatting to a mate of mine uh, who's an American who had established a wine business in the U.S., uh, in about 2017, I think it was. And, and he said the idea and he said, well, you know, why don't, why don't you, you know, I'll give you the contacts, the vineyards. Why don't you see if you can do the same in the UK? Um, and so I did research. I looked at how easy it was to get Croatian wine in the UK. You know, what would, you know, what did people say about it? What were the experts saying? Cause I mean, I'm no expert. I enjoy a glass of wine, but I am no expert. Um, and I believe that actually your ability to sell something is equally as important that you enjoy what you're selling than it is that you're an utter expert at it because you can have other people that are experts. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so I thought, well, why not? How difficult can it be to set up my own business in the middle of a pandemic? And so I started. Um, and I did literally step-by-step step research on my own, not knowing whether I was doing the right thing or the wrong thing, you know, trying to find out, you know, did I need a license to sell alcohol? It wasn't clear, so I did the exam anyway, just to make sure that I was covered um, because nobody could tell me. Uh, trying to set up a bank account uh, took, you know, which normally, you know, if we were outside COVID, you would expect to take probably three to four weeks. I think took three and a half months, maybe four months, um, you know, trying to get uh, samples sent over so that one could taste them so that you could say whether or not actually you think they're going to think. Then, you know, working out how, how what platforms you were going to use to, to, to sell not only on a website, but clearly Twitter, Instagram um, and the like. Um, and then bringing the wine over. Um, and of course, all those delays. I mean, I thought I'd set it up so nicely that, you know, the first shipment of wine would arrive, you know, a good six weeks before Christmas. Um, and therefore, my first sales could be over Christmas of, of 2020, because that would clearly be a lucrative time. No, the first shipment arrived in the UK on the 29th of December. So, of course, I couldn't sell, any, I, you know, I couldn't be selling wine before Christmas. So, I mean, unbelievably frustrating, but there's nothing you do about it. You know? And then dry dare, January. <laughs> yeah, and dare I say it, you know, Brexit probably didn't help. I mean, although we weren't fully into it then, it was, it, the processes were slowing up. Um, and then I started selling. Um, and the first year, I think, for a, a small business like that was, was, was good, you know, uh, if there was any benefits that came out of COVID, the alcohol business, the online alcohol business, was 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 strong. I mean, it was it. You know, people couldn't go out, so they would they would go searching online. And I think you know that year, the year of sort of twenty one, we were selling probably three hundred bottles a month, which is a decent turnover for 
uh, a first, a small business. Um, uh, and if you're, you know, retail, we were we were looking at selling at about a thirty percent um, uh, margin. And uh, sorry, business business to customer, so B two C thirty percent margin. And then for B two B, anywhere between a seven percent and ten percent margin. Um, so you know, it, it wasn't bad. Um, the trouble was that it became more difficult as restrictions were lifted. How manual was the process? Were you having the wine chipped to your house and then... No, not allowed to. Not allowed to. So you'd have to have a special license to do that, to store it there and to sell it from there. You know, you'd have to have... I can't remember who who had to come in, but something like three or four different organisations. So it's stored with a company called London City Bond and they pay... uh, You pay them a, a certain amount each month to store the wine and then they will do the shipping for you as well which okay. clearly they pay you know you pay for so you know um a, a standard shipment or for them is you know it starts at 12 pounds 50 for a case uh and then depending on postcode can go higher so if it's up to scotland it can be a lot higher if it's down to cornwall it's a lot higher clearly but most of the time it's about 12 pounds 50 plus vat um uh but you know they with all these processes, you know, you're only often you're only as good as as the people you are beholden upon, and and sometimes you know deliveries would get smashed or, yeah. you know, so on. So it was it was all quite difficult. But I was doing everything, and like a, a Shopify store, something yeah. like that. So I had Shopify, absolutely set that up. I designed it myself. I used one of their templates. I'd never designed a website before. So how easy did you find that? to be able to create a website that someone could browse products and purchase one? Uh, Shopify, I found very easy. Because I was starting from scratch, doing the whole thing myself, clearly it took me time to do the full design. And there were issues that you think you, you go live and you suddenly you go on and you go, that page is blank. So you'd have to go back in and work out why it had gone blank because you know their their online help tools aren't very helpful um, often. Uh, things like linking the uh, the Shopify site and I'll get my technology terms wrong and I'm sure you can pick me up on that to your web address, which is done by a different organisation, was pretty tricky. Shopify were not easy in bringing in linking making the link between those two, um, and that took time. And then the only thing that staggered me was the additional charges that they put on for each each sale. They're quite high, I think, for what for actually for what they're producing. Bearing in mind that you're paying them a fee, uh, an annual fee anyway, or, or you know you can be you can do it for two years, three years, or five years, I think. Um, but also every single time somebody makes a purchase, they charge a fee. So easy, but not the cheapest. No, I mean I think in terms of value for money. Uh, I'd say that they were as good as anybody else that I, that I could see on the market at the time. Now, I can't remember who else I looked at, but I did look at a few others. Um, I mean, for instance, I started using PayPal as well at the beginning. I stopped using them very quickly um, because they were uh, hold, withholding some payments because something about the fact they... They wanted proof of address of the person buying. I mean, it was ridiculous. I said, but hang on, they're buying my product. You should just give me the money. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, so they, so the customer then, luckily it was a friend of mine, had to then go onto their website, upload 
their home. I mean, it was just pathetic. And their charges are really quite big. Um, and so I, I stopped using them very quickly. And I ended up literally either just doing, just doing um, either backs um, payments or, or payments on the website. So you've, you identify a product that you'd like to sell, then very easy to set up an e-commerce website that you can transact from. I think, I think it is. I do think it is. And I think that it goes back to, I think, something you said earlier before we started this, which is, you know, continuous learning. You know, don't be afraid of going on to something like Shopify. And you can play around. You don't have to have a contract with them. You can just play around on their sites and try and build something. So go on there, play around. You know, don't just use Shopify. Use something, use other platforms. I mean, I can't remember what, what there are, but there are a lot of platforms out there. You know, go on there and work out what is best for you. Shopify is absolutely designed for selling goods. Um, you know, if you want to sell a bottle of something, Shopify is set up for it. If you want to sell shirts or boxer shorts or whatever it is, Shopify is set up for it. It is a proper... If you're selling a, uh, a you know, I don't know, a consultancy, you know, your consultancy services, like Shopify is probably not the way you'd go. It'd probably be somewhere else. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I wouldn't use, wouldn't be using Shopify as, as the, as the backdrop for our recruitment business because it's not set up for that. So you do need to work out what you're trying to sell and what is the right platform for it. If it is a product as in something physically somebody has, then something like Shopify is the way I would suggest, um, to go down, but, but don't be wedded to them. And actually there are so many nowadays that fight the cost. And so, yeah. So then from when someone placed an order, um, I, I'm going to assume lower levels of automation, but I could be wrong, that you would then get an email saying someone's place is order, they've paid the money, and then you would contact the... Yes, yes. So, so what, what happens was that, say, Nick goes onto my website, buys six bottles of wine, I get a notification that's been paid. What I then have to do is I then have to go onto the London uh, City Bond website, yeah. um, onto their, their system and load up your details, what wine you've ordered, the address it needs to be shipped to, and any other bits and pieces. So, for instance, you know, if you say, I I can only get it shipped at between 8 and 12 each day because that's the only time at home, you know, that information has to go in. Um, And then you determine whether or not it it is cheaper to get a second delivery company to do it or London City Bond to do it. Um, And to be honest with you, if, if it was over nine bottles it was easier just to get london city bond to do it if it was under nine bottles i used uh i think they're called apc um because they were a couple of pounds cheaper well if you're starting a business a couple of pounds cheaper for a delivery is is when a couple of pounds might be yeah 10 percent of your margin yeah exactly exactly and that's the point um although what i would say and i I don't think i was in my first round of pricing um i i wasn't very good at, at working this out. And it wasn't until I sat down with a friend of mine, the, this guy in America, and I just said, right, you know, what do you think of this? And he said, well, how much have you priced into the bottle delivery charge? And I think I priced in something like 25p. And of course, if you're pricing in 25p and you're doing free delivery on orders um, of, of 75 pounds or more, you know, it might be six bottles of wine. It might be six bottles of wine, and you're actually only 
getting whatever that works out as one pound fifty. I yeah. mean, you know, and he said, no, no, you need to be adding in a pound a bottle. Yeah. I, was going, I went, really? And he went, yeah. And he said, right, how much does it cost to store the wine? And I said, well, it costs whatever it was each month. And he said, right, that storage cost, what, how long is it going to take to sell that wine? And I said, well, I would hope no, no more than six months. And he said, right, you need to take a bit of a hit of that, but you then need to put three months worth of storage into the price of the bottle. And the advice I would give to anybody who's doing it is you've got to, and I know it sounds silly, but you've got to look at all of your costs. Yeah. Doesn't matter how small they are, because it's the smaller ones that will tend to run up behind you and bite you. So we we went through this uh, this process with um, with my company, looking at the packages, and uh, at the start, I'd looked at things and said, "Oh, but that's only a pound per user to add in." But then when we looked at the margin, it was like, "Well, you know, um, you're only making eight pound per user, and you're you're giving a pound of that away by dropping another product in." And it was. Um, it was eye opening. So now I, I have a spreadsheet that manages yeah, yeah. all my yeah. packages, so we see exactly yeah. what's involved in the delivery of every single one. And it's really, I think it's really important that you know when it's that understanding of of all the associated costs. And I don't think, and it, 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 I was fortunate that, that it didn't matter to me because I'd done all of that work before I launched, mainly because the wine was so late in arriving. But but you know I'd gone through that indicative process and one of the other things i'd gone through was uh which was everyone said to me you know uh markup and margin yeah i got those completely wrong to begin with i went to this one retailer and i said um uh you know these are my costs and he said he said right well if i want to sell this wine i've got to sell it for x i went but why he said because my margin is X. And I went, oh, I've done it on markup, haven't I? And he went, yeah. So I went back and had to read, literally redo the figures. <laughs> but it was a very good lesson. Yeah. Is you, you've got to base it on one or the other. But when I think it comes to pure sales of products, you're always better to work it on margin rather than markup. So did you have a plan for if it became really successful? If all of a sudden you were shifting volume, or were you just dipping your toe in the water and seeing what what you could what you could do with this idea? Uh, so to begin with, it was it was very much dipping your toe in the water and seeing see what I could do. It was, but it was also seeing what I could do. Yeah. So it was all, it, that was part of the the journey. It was part of the journey that I liked was the fact that I'd never done anything like this before. Yeah. And you think of all the different things involved. You know, you've yeah, got yeah. negotiation of, of purchase. You've got all sorts of regulatory things to deal with. You've got logistics in there. You've got some sales and marketing. You've got a bit of high-level web design. Yeah. There's there's a lot of pieces and to string together. There is no one go-to that can tell you how to do all that. Yeah. Um, and so, so there was a bit of that. Um, uh, so there was probably a bit of ego involved in making sure that I could actually do this. Um, I have heard a couple of people have said to me um, subsequently that I could have chosen an easier product, um, but but you've got to find the product. I think is the issue. You know, it's, it's all well and good to say you could have found an easier product, but what would that product have been? I I enjoy having a glass of wine, so why not do something you with what you enjoy? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd probably find it very difficult if I was to sell blue and red glasses. You know, it it's not. You know, that sort Even of if there is... was another blue one on the side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, I think you've got to 
if you're going to do something and do something well, I personally think, believe you've got to enjoy it. Yeah. Moving on from wine, mm. you then move to recruitment. Uh, yeah, so I joined a, uh, a defense consultancy called Universal Defense and Security Solutions, which had, I think had been set up in about 2018 as one of their associates. Um, and it was just to it was just do a little bit of work on the side of the wine this time. So the wine was the main thing. That was going to be the side hustle that, you know, because I could take the wine wherever they wherever, wherever I went. You just need a laptop. Um, and I did a bit of work for them on a couple of projects. And then they approached me in uh, April of uh, 21 and said, we've got, a, we've got an idea that we want to set up a recruitment arm to Universal Defence and Security Solutions. And we'd like you to, to lead it. So I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, what, what does this look like? And originally it was that they might look at buying into or buying um, uh, an existing recruitment company and then taking that on. And I was gonna be one of the two managing directors. Um, but as we went through that process, we quickly realized that actually it was probably better if we're gonna do it, we do it on our own. And the, the principal aim behind this was to help veterans and service leavers find jobs. Um, with one slight caveat in that, that we, we weren't ever looking to get into the mass recruitment market. Um, and the reason I say that is that if somebody, you know, the reason I say that is that if somebody came to me and said, Guy, I need to find 40 guards for something, I'd go, it's just not what we do. You go somewhere else. Um, because that's not what we want to do. We want to help individuals yeah. have second careers, not have a job. And I think there's a, there is a difference. Yeah. Um, and, and so we set off doing that. And, uh, and part of the driving force behind that, which I talked about earlier, was my experience of going for interviews and job hunting as I was being made redundant, where people would go, oh, we just, you know, you don't have enough experience. You don't have enough this, you don't have enough that. And, and I wanted to do, really to do two things. One, I wanted to help the yeah. veteran service leader community um, and give them, you know, my guidance from my point of view. It may not be right, but it's what I've seen. Um, and, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to say that it's it's absolutely the way you should do it, but I will advise. Um, take that advice or, or don't, you know, it's up to you. But also to go to clients and say, listen, employ somebody from the military. Yeah. Um, you know, you will get somebody who is adaptable, They'll work hard. They'll go the extra mile. They're dependable. Um, they can. They're resilient. They can manage risk. They can. They can solve problems. Interestingly, though, what I don't talk about is I don't talk about leadership and management. Um, and for me, there's a reason behind that. In that, often when you talk to clients, if you talk about military leadership and management, they have this notion in their head of a sergeant major screaming and shouting. Um, and that's not the type of leadership that they want in the commercial space. Um, and therefore, actually, what we want to do is you want to be singing from the rooftops about the other bits and pieces that veterans bring and service leavers bring. 
Um, and that is the bits I've already talked about. And then you add to couple that to, in most cases, honesty, integrity, uh, selfless commitment, uh, respect for others. You know, it all adds up. I mean, there was a story I was told where um, a bank in the city uh, started a veterans program and they, they, they brought some veterans in. And he said that it was very obvious after three or four months that they'd had this sort of osmosis change on the rest of the community and that suddenly others who would turn up, you know, either just on time or five or 10 minutes late because they'd stopped to go and get a coffee at Starbucks or whatever, and then would sort of sneak out five or 10 minutes early at the end of the day, you know, so on and so forth, were turning up early, were leaving slightly later. Whether that's a good thing or bad thing, it doesn't matter. It's just the good thing. They were looking smarter. They were, they were playing, playing nicer in the office, but in terms of teamwork. And he didn't know whether that was because that, that's the way the veteran behaved or whether it was the individuals in the office looked at the veteran and thought we owe this person respect for what they've done he couldn't put his finger on it but he just said there was a change and he said that change stayed um he said you always get the odd one or two who who go back to, to, to the original ways bad good or indifferent but he said it had an effect and i think that's something that we should all be very proud of um, we, we, aren't the, we aren't suitable for every job in the marketplace at all, but there are a lot of jobs we are suitable for and we shouldn't be afraid of going for them. And if the likes of you and me and others can champion that, um, you know, it, it will improve the lot of the veteran service lever. Yeah. I, I also, sorry, the other thing I, I think that is important to add is that I think that rank is now almost immaterial when it comes to who gets what job in civilian street in a lot of cases. I think there are clearly right at the top end general officers, very different, but, but I think senior non-commissioned officers, warrant officers, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, it's, it's slightly seamless now. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, there was still an air gap. I think you are now seeing a difference. I think you're now seeing much more equilibrium in, in the marketplace. And I hope we are. But, but I'm, I would never, if I felt that there was a senior non-commissioned officer who was absolutely right for a role, but the client has said, well, actually, what I really want is a major, I wouldn't hesitate in putting forward that senior non-commissioned officer yeah. because I would explain to the client what they're getting. Because you, uh, because you had so much spare time while you were doing all this. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you want to tell us about what your uh, little passion project is? Uh, so the Yukon 700? Yeah. One of the great things I think about lockdown was it, it bizarrely brought people together over Zoom or Teams or whatever, because I think we all have more time. Um, and I reconnected with uh, a mate of mine who, uh, who who was in the regiment with me. He was actually in my recce platoon um, in America. He lives in America and we were chatting about stuff and we were just chatting away. And he said, well, you know, I'm thinking about with this other guy of of looking at expedition where we might take UK and wound, American wounded military on, a, on an expedition along the Yukon. Um, and the other guy he was talking about was a chap called John Freyth, who's still serving. Um, and... John is again in my regiment and I rang up John and I said, oh, I just had a chat with Rob, you know, I'd love to help. Um, and that was literally all it was. It was, can I help you raise the money to go and do this? 
Um, and those conversations were the beginning of 21. So we're talking about sort of March 21. Um, and John said, yeah, great. You know, why don't we come, you know, come down here and have a brew. He lives about 20 minutes away. Um, and we had a brew in his garden. And by the, literally by the time I got back into the car, as I sat in the driver's seat, I said to myself, I think I'm now sat in a canoe in June next year. He'd literally managed to, I don't know how, we'd gone from me helping him raise money to me helping him raise money and be on the expedition with him um, sat, sat in a canoe. I mean, he didn't take a huge amount of persuasion, I can promise you. He sounds like a good salesman. He's a, he's a very good salesman. <laughs> I mean, he didn't take a huge amount of, uh, of, of convincing. I mean, you think of the, the challenge. So our, our challenge was to go to the Yukon Territory in Northwest Canada. And we would canoe from a place called Whitehorse down to a place called Dawson City. Um, weirdly, I say down because that is going down, but we're heading north um, because the River Yukon sort of uh, goes north, flows north up through Canada from the Rockies and then turns west and goes out through Alaska into the Bering, almost into the Bering Straits. Um, and the route that we were going to do is about 740 kilometres um, and we wanted to take five wounded veterans. And the reason it's five was three non-wounded and then five wounded. We didn't want to do four and four because that takes a bit of a challenge away from it. Yeah. Um, so if you've got two people in a canoe at any one time, there are always going to be two wounded in the canoe. Um, and again, that adds a bit of a challenge, clearly. Um, and... Uh, we were going to do this, this 740 kilometres in seven days, totally unsupported. So, you know, if something, God for sake, it didn't, but if something went wrong, you know, we could probably get somebody to a main hospital bed within 24 hours. Not the golden hour or anything like that, because, you know, the chances are they'd have to fly in a small plane or helicopter to somewhere to pick the injured party up, transport them to somewhere else, to then transport them onto a bigger something or other, whether it's a plane or a vehicle or something, to then take them to the nearest hospital to properly triage them. So there was huge challenges involved in all of this. Um, and so we set, the, we set the process in motion. Um, we, we're very lucky in the, our regimental charity, the Colonel's Fund, the Grenadier Guards, um, we employ a casualty officer that looks after all our casualties, um, not just from Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, but also anybody that's been um, uh, suffering. Um, and we've had people, you know, coming out of the woodwork with PTSD, as one, as lots of regiments do. Um, but they, he also still looks after the bereaved families. Um, uh, and so... We got hold of Matt and said, right, Matt, this is what we want to do. Can you give us five names? And so we did. He gave us five names. Um, uh, and do you want me to give you the names? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. I, I, yeah. As long as they would be happy. I don't think it really matters. So we had, we had Paul Richardson, who was the oldest on the trip, uh, had joined the army in the early 80s, mid 80s, and left in the mid 90s. Um, uh, we had Garth Banks, who was the uh, was a, a platoon commander on a Herrick tour and lost both his legs. Uh, we had Tony Checkley, who was a guardsman who'd lost one leg. 
Uh, we had Dougie Adams, and then we had Alex Harrison, who had been shot uh, through the eye uh, on the same tour that we were on. With he was attached to the Royal Anglians, um, and these were our these were our our five, and then uh, and then we had to bring on because Rob couldn't make it because uh, of work commitments in America. We then brought on a, a great friend of ours called Ben Stevens, um, who had helped to raise a lot of money for us by bicycling 700 kilometers continuously around the Suffolk countryside and raised about 15,000 um, uh, pounds. I would hate to see what the sores were like um, on his body. Um, uh, I can just about sit on a bicycle for an hour. He did it for, I think it was almost 20 something out, 27 hours continuously. Um, uh, and then we set about the process of raising money. And by the time we had got back, I think we had raised uh, about 85,000, 90,000 wow. um, pounds in total uh, raising, which was included a big fundraising dinner for our regimental charity, uh, which raised about 45,000 pounds, our just giving page, which raised about 19,000 pounds, which all of that money went to SAFRA and Combat Stress. Um, so we managed to give them about nine and a half thousand each. Um, I think just over nine and a half thousand. Um, and then since then, we've had some amazing, amazingly generous um, uh, donations from um, different organizations and different people. And so it was a huge success. We went in June, um, John and I flew over together had spent a day sorting out admin, the rest of the team then arrived that night. We then did a day's training, uh, which included capsize drills. A whole day. Whole day of training. <laughs> whole day of training. Um, uh, oh, you know, what, what else do you need? Um, uh, the water, unbelievably cold. I mean, you know, I mean, this is glacial water. So, you know, Two degrees, imagine. isn't it? Oh, my God. Anyway, um, and, then, uh, and then we set off the next day, at midday the following day. Just the um, eight of you with four canoes. Just the eight of us. And some bags. Four of canoes, a um, few fishing rods, uh, some bear spray, um, some bangers to scare off bears if we saw them. Um, uh, you know, ration packs, um, I think a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of ports, a whole load of chocolate. Um, and yeah, off we went. Good banter? Oh, it was huge, mate. It was huge. It it did everything that we wanted to do and more. If you could give a piece of advice to someone who was leaving within the next 12 months? Network. One word, network. Um, you know, I, I've always lived off the rather trite adage, it's who you know, not what you know. And I know that's quite a trite saying, but actually you're... The more you can network, the more you can reach out to people, speak to people, yeah. um, is the better. And but always, I, and I think this is this is something about I say manners. But if you have reached out to someone and they've given you time, drop them an email to say thank you, because that makes the world. And also, what it does, it makes them want to help you more. Yeah. And I think that's key. You know, too too often you speak to somebody and you don't get anything back from them, and you think, actually, why did I bother? It takes nothing to say thank you. But network, network, network. There are some great networks out there. And you probably come across, um, uh, is it the uh, Gen Dit, head, head, uh, set up by Chris Shaw, who's an ex-Royal Marine. I think they set it up six months or nine months ago. They've got over nearly 9,000 followers now. Wow. 
It's a brilliant little network. Um, you know, get on things like that. Don't be afraid to reach out to people who you might not have spoken to for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Yeah. Because I believe that most people, particularly if, if you've served either alongside them or you've served, will, will give you time. Yeah. Um, and that's, so one piece of advice, network. And you can't network enough. When networking, do it in the way that you're going to that person to ask for their advice rather than going to them and asking for a job. And I think there is a very subtle difference there in that people are more likely psychologically to want to help you if you say, can I come and pick your brains about something? Can I ask your advice on something? You know, you want their help rather than I'm demanding something from you. Yeah. I want to take something from you. No, no, you want them to give you something that's there in their power, which is their advice, um, or to, you know, just to pick their brains about something. And you never know what comes of it because they open a door to somebody else, who opens the door to someone else, and then the next thing you know, you're offered a job. Ben sending me a message on LinkedIn uh, led to the idea for this podcast after meeting people who I was like, when I was leaving the military, I didn't know that stuff like this happened. I thought people just want to work for BT or G4S. But that's, that's not the case. <laughs> Can I throw in one tangential piece of advice, though? Never, ever, ever pay for somebody to write your CV. <laughs> yeah. The CV is a personal document. Get advice on it? Absolutely. But if you haven't written it, it's very obvious. Get someone else to check your spelling and grammar. Yep. <laughs> but never, ever pay for your CV. And I'm probably doing a lot of CV writers out of a job there, but never, ever pay somebody to write your CV. And don't do it on chat GPT either. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right, that, thank you so much for your time today. Nick, it's, it's been, been a pleasure. Good. It's been really good. Thanks it's been very great. Much. I think we could have gone on and boring people even more. <laughs> blue or blue. Perfect. <laughs> Brilliant, Nick. Thanks for listening. I'm sure you'll agree the stories from the guests on the show are incredible. Starting your own company is a brave and difficult thing to do. There's a theme of resilience running through all these stories, which is key to success as an entrepreneur. If you're a veteran with a good story to tell, we'd love to have you on. If you're leaving the military and you want to get in touch, email podcast at littlebigtech.co.uk. If you run a business and you're looking for an IT company that's entrepreneurial and forward thinking, please do get in touch. I hope you enjoy the rest of the series.